talking about. Film's the greatest educational medium the world has ever known. Hi guys, and welcome back to Teenage Golden Age, a podcast where we talk about old Hollywood movies from the perspective of the next generation. Today, I'm so honored to be interviewing Paula Brossard and Lisa Royer for their new book, Eleanor Powell, Born to Dance, all about Eleanor Powell. And I am so excited to be talking about her and talking about their book. So I hope you enjoy. Before we get started, though, please make sure to rate and review us if you enjoy our podcast because it helps grow our audience and help more people hear about old movies. Also, make sure to follow our Instagram and TikTok where we post movie clips, podcast clips, reminders about when new episodes come out, and more. For people who aren't familiar with her, who was Eleanor Powell and what legacy did she have in the golden age of Hollywood? Uh, Eleanor Paul was the greatest female tap dancer of all time, (laughs) and uh, she was really unique. She was the first female dancer to have an entire vehicles built around her talent. Uh, Yeah, I have to agree with Lisa. She was the greatest female tap dancer. Um, Eleanor's films helped put MGM on the map as a leader of musicals. She also uh, established herself as a basically the female solo dancer who did not need anyone else to make the number spectacular. So. And she was also the first female to do her own choreography. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember first watching her and being so amazed at, at her talent. I've never seen anything like that. Why is Eleanor Powell such an overlooked dancer? That's kind of a hard question. There could be several reasons. Um, She didn't make too many movies, so that could be one of them. But I think she's overshadowed by the big production movies of like the Freed Unit or the Warner Brothers movies with, you know, the Busby Berkeley did, uh, Astaire and Rogers. Uh, I don't know. People remember those. Those are more frequently seen. And hers just, her movies just weren't seen a whole lot. Yes, I, I, yeah, I agree. Um, I think she became overlooked because uh, she stopped making films in the early 40s. She did not do so much television um, and basically dropped from public view. Um, And her films weren't readily available to be seen again until uh, revival theaters started showing them in the 70s. So, yeah, I noticed that her career is pretty short compared to some of the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stars. Yeah. How did she contribute to the evolution of musicals? Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think, uh, as we said, she was the first female dancer that whole vehicles were built around her. And I think that people today don't realize how big of a star she was at her time. But um, right now, I mean, in these days, people think of MGM as like the biggest producer of the greatest musicals of all time and if it hadn't been for her uh they may not have had that legacy um they started out really well in 1929 with the broadway melody it was like the first all talking all singing all dancing movie that won an academy award but everything that they produced after that was kind of 
not so great. And they were trying really hard to compete with what was happening at RKO with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and the Warner Brothers musicals. And uh, they just, they were looking desperately for uh, a star of their own and something unique. And they hit on it with her uh, kind of by accident. But when they realized what they had, they put all their eggs in that one basket and they just worked so hard to make this movie. And it was a huge hit at the time. And I think that uh, that movie and her talent was a big factor in the rest of the history of musicals. I agree with that. Um, I think one of the big things that she did contribute uh, that wasn't really uh, a big part of musicals until a few years later after she left was the way she worked with props and specialty things. Um, you know, she has whole number, like she has a, a, a Western roping number that, you know, she learned how to use the, the lariat and the rope and everything and did a whole number. Um, she, she did a whole number with a dog, you know, she did, um, all kinds of specialty prop things like that, that it wasn't really um, widely done until, you know, uh, Fred and Jean were doing it more so later, but she um, kind of started that ball rolling, really. Um, yeah, she kept so. trying, trying to top herself in everything mm -hmm. that she did and come up with new ideas. And we ran across an article where she was supposedly testing trash can lids <laughs> to see which had the best rhythm or the best sound. And she never did a, uh, a number using them, but Gene Kelly did later in It's Always mm -hmm. Fair Weather. Mm -hmm. uh, he and Dan Daly danced on trash can lids and it was mm -hmm. very right. unique. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, her musical numbers are very eccentric and incredible to watch. <laughs> I, I remember watching like the that, uh, that, musical number she did with the dog and yes i yeah. love that yeah it's so fun <laughs> yeah she even took that dog home with her for about six weeks and trained him herself mm -hmm. wow which film right. of powell's showcases her abilities as a dancer best uh i think well you know nearly all of her numbers show her technical skill but broadway melody of 1936 is my preference uh for her her kind of acapella tacit work, you know, that she does in the Mademoiselle Arlette number. Um, it shows those really precise rhythms that she was famous for. And the finale number for that movie is just spectacular. It just shows her pure joy while performing and all of her technique, all of her, her spins, her, you know, the, the, her signature look, everything, um, I think that one is the one I think really uh, I would pick as a favorite. Yeah, me too. I usually show those two numbers to anybody who doesn't know her. I think any of the Broadway melodies are pretty iconic in showing mm -hmm. the big production numbers and her top hat and tails look and everything. But those two are really special and uh, they really never fail to impress <laughs> Yeah, I love the way she wore a top hat and tails. Mm -hmm. I thought it was mm -hmm. super cool. Different. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> How was her mother Blanche such an important and supportive figure in her life? Um, 
Well, Blanche had Eleanor when she was just 16, just about to turn 17. So they were as close as sisters. Um, she, like Eleanor, was a hard worker and a real believer that Eleanor should follow her passion because she saw how much talent her daughter had. She was Eleanor's champion and partner on the road. Uh, she protected her from men and producers that you know, might want to take advantage of her. She handled all the business, the travel aspect while Eleanor toured month after month in vaudeville. And she was really, really indispensable. Um, I think that to me just stood out in our research. Yeah, me too. Um, Eleanor considered her a partner to her and she did everything uh, in the practical nature, like Paula said. And she also did things that were not... Um, scene like she rubbed her daughter's feet her aching feet after she danced them off really to the bone <laughs> and uh, she was an amazing person who had um, such an influence on Eleanor's life all through her life I was reading your book it's great how like seeing how supportive her mother was throughout her career mm -hmm. why was Eleanor's voice dubbed so often and are there any other any clips of her actual singing? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think, see, Eleanor had sung already in vaudeville and on Broadway. Uh, and when she got to MGM, she was like uh, the most incredible dancer. I think MGM, as they were putting all this emphasis on this film, I think they wanted everything to be perfect. She didn't have a super strong singing voice, but she had a pleasant singing voice. So they just decided to make it better and dubbed her with Marjorie Lane. But the ironic thing is that when Broadway Melody of 1936 premiered on Broadway in 1935, September of 1935, at the same time, she was appearing in a musical called At Home Abroad, where she was actually singing every single night. And at the month later, she was recording records with Tommy Dorsey, where she was singing. So I don't know what MGM was thinking of. They weren't exactly hiding her voice, but she actually did sing in her movies uh, from Rosalie in 1937 on. But they never gave her a huge chance to sing big numbers like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly didn't have great voices either but they sang a lot. They never gave her the chance to do that. Right, I'd have to agree with all of what she said. I think just MGM had different ideas about the types of voices they wanted and liked. So that was an initial factor, but later on, I think they they uh, kind of widened that scope a bit and found that, you know, she actually uh, could sing enough that it was, you know, pleasant enough for the uh, person, yeah. you know, for the she viewers. She was already a star, so she mm -hmm. right. went over that hurdle. And I must say that Marjorie Lane, who did do her dubbing, did a great job. And she was a really good match for her type of voice. Right. It is very close to her actual voice. So, yeah, it wasn't a big jump. Yeah, I was about to ask if mm -hmm. the person that dubbed her, if their voices were like completely different or the same. Yeah. They no, had the no, same, yeah, yeah. same sound, but Marjorie Lane was a trained singer where mm -hmm. Ellie wasn't. And... Right. While making a Broadway melody of 1940, did Eleanor clash with Fred Astaire's perfectionist tendencies or did they fit well together? And were there any conflicts? Uh, 
I would say that no, not at all. They did not clash. They both had equally strong work ethics and they were both basically workaholics. Uh, the main difference between them is their style of tap dance, their style of dance. Uh, they had great admiration for each other and they continued to respect each other's work. Um, but Eleanor was not going to be another ginger, uh, which is what Fred worked best with as a partner, someone who was not technically skilled as he was. So uh, that was the difference there, I think. I think the only conflict, it wasn't really a conflict though, uh, the only difficulty they had was breaking the ice in the beginning. So because they both mm -hmm. worked at the choreography of their numbers, each had a very high respect and esteem for the other one. And they were very formal in the very beginning and had a little bit of trouble getting into uh, a really good casual working relationship. But once they did, mm -hmm. they, uh, like Paula said, they were workaholics and they stayed late <laughs> and they they worked each other to death. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Ginger Rod the way Ginger Roger dances is very different from the way Eleanor Powell dances. So it's Interesting. Yes, it's definitely interesting. A different contrast to see mm -hmm. Astaire dance with each one of them. Yeah, yeah. Why was she named Astaire's female counterpart? That was uh, kind of go ahead. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead that was kind of a general thing of the day. He was the top dancer in film, period. And so whenever another dancer came along that was uh, really good, they always were compared to him. And so uh, this happened twice. Uh, there was a British dancer, Jesse Matthews, who they also called her Fred Astaire's counterpart. Um, and then when Ellie came, they, they, the publicity from the very beginning, 1935, when she becomes uh, famous, from the get-go, they're comparing her to Fred Astaire, saying that she's his counterpart. And all they wanted to do was to see them dance together. Yes, yes, definitely uh, what Lisa was saying, that since Fred had taken that lead by that point, um, all the other studios wanted to have someone that matched that and would give them that kind of opportunity. So she was exactly what everyone was looking for at that point, and I think more, really, than they anticipated. How did the research process work in terms of interviews, public records, and more? And was what was the most interesting research discovery you made? Um, well, we we started our research over 40 years ago, directly with Eleanor, and then were aided at that time by tons of library work, which is all you had at that time, and where we had to literally write out everything by hand if we couldn't photocopy it. Uh, then we were able to get access to the files on her films at MGM, because I, I worked there at that time. And then many years later, when we actually... Uh, you know, restarted the book uh, just a couple years ago. Um, archives and digital collections were available and we were able to find even more things that we never had access to. Um, and it's been a really tremendous research journey. I think Lisa can elaborate on some of that too. Yeah, we had already a big body of uh, research that we had done. Uh, but when we were able to start it, the project again and all, everything was available digitally, it was amazing. The the things that mm -hmm. we could easily find, it was so great. <laughs> and um, one of the most uh, 
exciting discoveries was, you know, to so the obscure years, like when she was in Atlantic City as a child, we didn't really have that much information except for what she had said. Um, and so to find those in the newspaper and descriptions of the numbers and mm -hmm. corrections of where she worked, because there were some misconceptions. And uh, so that was interesting. But I think our greatest discovery during the whole gener uh, the whole journey was back in the day when we discovered that she was in a 1930s musical, 1930, uh, starring Ginger Rogers called Queen High. And we didn't know this because she never mentioned it. And we we found her. It wasn't just us. It was um, a guy that we were working with at the UCLA Film Library and said, hey, you got to get down here and see this. And she was dancing in the chorus and she had her little Dutch boy, Bob, that she sported on Broadway. It was just right after she had done her first Broadway hit. And they called people in from the show to do this number to be you know, dancers in the background. And she was one of them. And uh, it was it was really amazing for us to see her. And the most recent uh, discovery that we made that was fun was we discovered that in her she made a comeback in the 1960s and she was on a show called The Hollywood Palace. Well, we discovered that one of the male dancers who supported her in that was none other than Dan Truitt, who played Rolf in The Sound of Music. And we got to talk to him and that was really a, a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Wow, do you guys start working with each other from the very beginning or? Yes. Yes, we yeah, were, yeah, we knew each other. Uh -huh. we, we were teenagers. We, yeah, we, we were oh, wow. usherettes at a, at a theater complex here and um, yeah, both of us center. had, yes, it's the music center in Los Angeles. In Los and, Angeles. And, um, we, that was the same year that that's entertainment came out and since lisa and i both had a dance background uh we uh connected and thought oh have you seen this wonderful dancer eleanor powell etc and that kind of started you know everything that's when we became friends so we've known each other since Forever. 1974 <laughs> yeah <laughs> your age or just a little bit younger than you how old are you i'm 16 yeah oh you're yeah, 16 we were, okay yeah yeah so a year later Two years later is when we met. <laughs> and that's yeah. how long we've been together. Did your dancing backgrounds help you while creating the book? Yes. 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 Go ahead, Lisa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we both said yes at the yeah. same time. Um, <laughs> it definitely does. I mean, uh, you look at it in a different way when you've had the training. And mm -hmm. um, well, I, I must say that most of my training was in ballet and jazz, not necessarily tap, but we both have had training in tap not just to the level but we you recognize so much uh, of the influence of these different uh, types of dance in Ellie's dance for example mm -hmm. that's one of the things that makes her a great tap dancer and she would always say this that she had a foundation in ballet and that right. just added something special and something different to her carriage uh, she also was very good in acrobatics you can see it in her high kicks and back bends and it's just, it, it added a refinement to her dance. And yes, it helped us view each number as we were analyzing it and understand it better. Um, yeah, and I, I'm gonna throw in that one of Lisa and I's most wonderful memories is that uh, <laughs> we were at her house one day and in her kitchen and we were talking about tap and she actually taught us a little step. 
And we were, I mean, that's a irreplaceable memory. It is absolutely wonderful. And um, we're, it's a blessing, you know, to have. Yeah. <laughs> It's exciting, yes. Yes. <laughs> and and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How was it meeting her? Was it everything you hoped for? More. Oh my <laughs> gosh, more. Yeah. I mean that immediately um meeting her, she made everybody feel immediately like you, you know, your best friend. It, it was sincere. It was not a phoniness. There was no star. A facade. It was immediately um, this big smile, and you know, asking questions, personal things, and you know, oh, you have to see this, and I'll have to show you that. And it was just, uh, she was that phenomenal person. And um, I think if she wasn't, the project probably would never would have happened, <laughs> obviously. But because of who she was, um, yes, yes, a hundred percent. It was exciting meeting her. Paula met her first and uh, I kept missing her and it was yeah. so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> so, so finally uh, they were having a, a retrospective at a little theater showing her films. And I had gone with a friend of mine, or maybe it was with you, Paula. And he said, yeah, yeah. The, we saw that she was going to appear and we decided to we, the together. owner of the yeah. theater said, Oh, you just missed Eleanor Powell. She was here last night. Yeah. And I was like, no, not again. <laughs> and so he said, but it's okay. She's coming back next week. We're celebrating her birthday. And so we made it a point to be there. And the rest is kind of history. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That must have been incredible to me here. Yes. Yeah. Last question. Why should teenagers watch and learn about Eleanor Powell, Eleanor Powell? And why should teenagers read Eleanor Powell, Born to Dance? Uh, I I think watching Eleanor Powell and reading her life story takes you, as we were just saying, into another era. But the common thread is there for all, uh, you know, young people and teens. She had a talent and a passion. She put all her heart and soul into it. She knew that working hard and not giving up on herself was the path to achieving success. And she also realized that monetary success is not nearly as important as creative success. And, and these are all principles that teens can relate to. Uh, and they go hand in hand with watching her on screen. And above all, I think she taught us and she teaches everyone that watches her to find joy in your talent. I don't know if I can add anything to that, but uh, she's just a great inspiration as to what a teenager can do. Um, mm -hmm. I remember looking at her films, being a teen and going, oh my gosh, look all that she, look what she's accomplished at this age. And I'm mm -hmm. almost that age. And oh my gosh, <laughs> I haven't done anything. <laughs> but, and also I was thinking too, today I mentioned to Paula, um, Eleanor wasn't, she she had a, a phase where she was kind of like an ugly duckling. At least they considered her that. She had crooked teeth. She had knobby knees. And she had like an irregular growth spurt. <laughs> and she didn't care because all she cared about was dancing. And she learned how to push through uh, those difficult times that we've all experienced. You know, how we judge ourselves. And especially today with social media, it's really hard. Um, but she just uh, said, 
you know, people can say anything they want about me. They can say I can't act. They can say I can't sing. They can say I'm not pretty, but they can't say that I can't dance. Yeah, her dancing is super inspiring. I used to be a dancer as well. And just watching her dance is like, it makes me want to dance again. Yeah. Uh (laughs) You should go for it. I should, I should. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Lisa and Paula for being a part of it. And you guys should definitely go purchase their book in any bookstore. Uh, Eleanor Powell, Born to Dance, definitely such a good book. And there is nothing out there like it. If you guys have any questions or comments, please make sure to email us at teenagegoldenage at gmail.com. That's teenagegoldenage at gmail.com. See you in our next episode. Bye.